Um, I know Adam's listening in. Adam had a question about spanking children. He said, is spanking children for punishment ever a good thing? How did you punish your children if they did something against the rules? They wouldn't have done that, would they? They're nice kids. <laughs> of course they would have done that. You know, the children need to push the rules. That's part of what they're doing and defining themselves is pushing the rules. So pushing the rules is expected, even necessary, that they would uh, try to, to do that. Uh, is spanking ever necessary? Well, I would say, yes, it probably is in some cases and some children and depends on what they did. You know, it's uh, it has to do with the, the severity of it and it has to do with the personality of the child. Now, should, should some children never be spanked? Yes, I'd say again, there's some children who are very sensitive. Um Spanking is overkill. You know, that's more than you have to do to make your point. Uh, other children, they won't get your point unless it's made, you know, very, very firmly and very dramatically, you know, and spanking might be good there. So it depends on the individual child, whether it's, whether it's a good idea or a bad idea. The point is you want to make an impression on them figuratively speaking, not a, not an impression on them, uh, literally with a, yeah, with a, a handprint, you want to leave it, you want to make an impression on them so that they will think about and consider, you know, what they've done relative to the rules and why the rules are there and, and see it in a larger context. And if there is no stress involved, well, then they don't take it seriously. It's not really a big problem. So the parent has to decide, is it really a big problem? How big a problem is it? You see, if it's a really big problem and it's really important that they get it, otherwise they're going to you know, create a great deal of harm for themselves, then you need to be a little more insistent and make sure they get it. For some children, that could be just a stern look. That's enough to bring some children to tears, just a stern look. Well, in that case, a spanking would be overkill. You don't want to use any more stress than necessary to make your point and get them to pay attention to it and think about it. So when the question is, is it ever a good thing to do? I would say it probably is in some cases. The only thing that would work, other things wouldn't work very well, but uh, is it always a good thing to do? And I'd say, no, it's not always a good thing to do. It depends on the severity of, of what happened, depends on how much risk it lets the child in, and it depends on the sensitivity of the child. As to, you don't, some children you don't need to lean on very hard to get their attention. Some will just listen to you. And others, unless you do something dramatic that they can remember, it just goes in one ear and out the other. So you have to... The punishment has to fit both the child and the crime, I guess, is, is what I would say. What did I do with my children? I did spank them once in a while, but I'd say it was a very rare event. And probably my boy got spanked more than my girls because my girls were more sensitive and my boy was more hard-headed and needed a little more uh, convincing. But it would have been a very rare thing. I didn't feel like I had to get to that point of, of uh, spanking very often. So if, if all four of my children together could remember and sum up all the spankings they got, I suspect they could 
add all of them up together and probably count them on one hand. But occasionally, that's necessary. And when it is, you wouldn't want to not go there just because it's a spanking. If that's what it requires, then your child will eventually thank you for that because what you're doing is trying to teach them right and wrong. You're trying to teach them about responsibility. You're trying to teach them about being considerate of others. There's lots of lessons they need to learn. And if they don't learn those lessons when they're children, those lessons are a lot tougher to, to learn and to deal with the consequences when you're older. It's so much easier to learn all that when you're six years old and so hard to learn that when you're 26 or 36 or 46 years old and you're still not considerate or you're rude or you're this and you're that. Well, now you're not going to pay attention unless you get hit right between the eyes with a two before, you know, it has to really hurt. It has to be very painful or you just blow it off. So it's a, it's better for children to learn those lessons when they're, when they're young, it's less painful in the long run. If you uh, teach them early. Sveta is now ready to ask her second question. Sveta, it's all yours. As usual, it's very difficult to ask my questions. Uh, last time when we talked on a fireside chat, there were a point at our conversation when I said, uh, I was talking about seeing vision. Hmm. And I said how happy they make me in meditation. Um, and definitely not something that comes out of me. It comes from another source, for sure. I could, I could never make stories like this. It, it goes mm -hmm. on and on and on, and totally unexpected visions. So uh, I said I was very happy and can't even imagine uh, anything better. And you left and you said you would be surprised. <laughs> I know you want me to be sort of want us to be surprised but uh, how t tangible it can become like it's still i still i see them not with these eyes of course i see them inside it's coming like from from pleroma or something but um when i read your books it sounds like you are in hd tv is it like that for you that tangible for you, like you can see your body in another reality, you can see other uh, people, entities, and can talk to them as in this reality, or it's always forever will be like a dream. Here, well, it, it depends on what it is I'm doing and kind of what the what the point is of the interaction that I'm having. If I'm having an interaction. Let's say early on you have interactions that are more about the place. Where are you? You know, what's the environment like there in that reality? Then if it's kind of got an environmental question to it, like what's going on around you? What are the surroundings? You know, what are the, what are the beings like? Uh, how do you interact with them? Then it's, yeah, like high definition. It's just, you know, it's just like being in this physical reality. It's like a physical reality. And sometimes it's even clearer than this reality. The colors are more vibrant. You know, the detail is, is, uh, is, is greater. But part of that's because your detail can come and go with your intent. When you're in that sort of a reality, and if you want to see something very up close, then you can. If you want to look at someone and see every pore on their skin, you can do that. 
or you can dive down into the skin or inside the skin, or you can, you know, like a, like a zoom control. You have a zoom control where you can zoom in or zoom out, and you can do that in kind of high-definition clarity. But let's say I'm not doing something where I'm looking at my environment and what's around me and the critters in it. Maybe I'm just communicating, communicating with someone I know. Well, in that case, I may not see anything at all. It may just be a communication without any shapes or any forms, or it may be something that is um, just the part that I'm interested in. Let's say if you're communicating, you might want a facial, you know, so you might see a face, but you might see it just enough to add that, whether you catch the smile or catch the frown, you know, a little bit of body language uh, with the face. And that's all. And everything around the edges is kind of dimmed out. So now it's it's different. So depending on what I'm doing and how much data I need, it could be foggy. It could be no images at all. It could be super high definition or just, you know, it could be very foggy because I, I don't I don't need detailed visuals. I just need an understanding. So then there's no point in putting in putting detail to the visuals at that case, or maybe it's sound. Then I may, maybe my sound is real high definition, but the vision can be very cloudy. It just depends on what I'm doing because you get to decide the kind of the, the, the resolution that you need and to have more resolution than you need for what you're trying to accomplish is just a waste of resources. So you just give enough resolution to do what you want to do and any more isn't necessary. Yeah, I had a couple of remote viewings that is successful. It scared me and scared another person. But I have another question um, along these lines. Uh, I'm wondering, because you are so scientifically oriented, I'm wondering if, you, uh, if the doors to the world, magic world I see is open to you. Can you go to those to that world, uh, not that um, um, laboratory-like world, you know, but with mythological creatures, symbols, stuff like that, fairy tales all around you, but not old ones that you remember. It's happening mm -hmm. in your life. Yes, the the answer to that is yes, I can but I probably wouldn't just for the reason you say. I tend to deal with things more, um, I guess, less metaphorical, more direct the way a scientist would. But I have been in those states where you do see things that are very uh, symbolic and metaphorical. And it's a place I can go, but it's not a place that I do go so often. But I've been there enough that when you tell me about your experiences, I can relate to those, what, what they are and how they're working and so on. It's, it's not that's outside of my experience or something that I, that I can't do, but it's something I generally wouldn't choose to do. And it would be something that I did early on. It would be a long time ago. I'd have to go back, you know, 30 years before I get to the time where that was more primary. 
because at that point I didn't understand enough of it to be very scientific about it. I was still kind of grasping for straws and I didn't have the big picture very well. So my, my model was very loose and open. And then I got a lot more loose and open kind of metaphorical things in those, in those days. Uh, more recently, I don't get as much of that because I can get it more direct without having to interpret, you know, what the, what the symbols mean, what the metaphors are. Because the metaphors you get are personal for you. I saw, I did look at uh, your question today, and I saw the picture of you holding a horse's head. And uh, when you get those sorts of things, you find that the metaphor is very particular to you, usually. You know, like, what does that horse's head mean to you? What is it the metaphor for? Meant nothing at all. It's just like it's. I'm still don't. I still don't understand why this image appeared. It upset many people in my group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it doesn't have to be the way it seems because when you see a ho- a horse, a horse's head without the horse, you immediately yeah. jump to the conclusion that something awful happened. Right? That's somebody chopped the head off a horse, and that's terrible. But that's not what it's about at all. It's not like that. You know, the horse's head is a metaphor. It's a metaphor and a symbol for something, and it's particular to you. It's not something that maybe everybody would, would get. And I could think of maybe three or four things that the, that the metaphor might be, you know, might be about, you know. Like, but the, like for instance, um, you know, a, a horse's head is the part of the horse that you interact with, and most of the horse is other than his head. His head's just probably 10% of the whole horse. And people are like that. When you interact with people, you get to see about 10% of what they present to you. But there's a whole lot more going on in the background that you don't get to see. You don't get to interact with. And there that metaphor could be that you just enjoy and interact with people at the level that they wish to show you. And don't worry about all the rest of it. You know, don't feel like you need to dig deeper or or know, you know, what what their innermost thoughts and beings are like. Just deal with them gracefully and lovingly at whatever level they want to interact with you at and let the rest go. Let it be. So that could be a metaphor. So that's one, you know, I could think maybe several metaphors that you could come out. And only one of those probably is going to be the one that was intended for you. So it's you have to find the metaphor that is meaningful to you. And the, you said the, the horse's head didn't look like it. it was anything wrong. It was warm and nice. It was a very friendly kind of positive thing. So it didn't have anything to do with anything ghastly or anything like that. It was a, you know, the metaphor is a very uh, a positive one, not, a, not anything negative at all. And holding it in your hands, you have to connect to it. You have to be you know, not put it aside, but to deal with it, connect to it. You hold it in your hands. It's a, it's a thing to deal with would be the holding it in your hands. But those things are very individual. And I didn't uh, look at your site, so I don't know what kind of comments you got, but uh, I suspect a lot of people would have been, um, had some trouble with the fact of you had just the head without the horse. They thought it was some kind of a, a gory thing, but uh, they're missing the whole point. That's not it at all. You get those things a lot, all kinds of metaphors, 
and they can be very strange and very fanciful. So oh, just the head without the horse is, is just a, a metaphor. It's a, it's a, of course, it's a delight to have all these visions, but uh, I have this incessant need to share and uh, about, like, for example, some visions I can at least, it's so far from real vision, but I can at least paint it and represent. But mm -hmm. most of it is just like a movie, non-ending movie, and I, I feel so frustrated that I can't make it into the movie, or at least into the world. Right. Yeah. Overwhelming, overwhelming. Yes, well, sharing is an important part of it for you because it's in the sharing process is where you kind of connect to the meaning of it. If you just think about it intellectually, then you just confuse yourself. Yeah, but was, if in the, in the process of yeah, in the process of sharing, you get to feel about it in different aspects as the people comment and so on. And when you're done, then you've gotten you've really gotten the message. So the sharing process is important for you, and you see these pictures probably in some part because you are a painter, you are an artist, and when you're an artist, then having having graphic image is a way to communicate. I mean, that's the form of communication for an artist. So it would be a, you know, it'd be a odd if you didn't have a lot of pictures and things like that because artists communicate that way. You understand that. Yeah, what's the point of the source sending all this beauty to me if I can't even remember it afterwards? <laughs> I, all I remember is that it was, oh, you know, it's it. But right. no details. It's just such a pity. Yes, well, don't, sometimes the details aren't, aren't as important as just the big sense of the picture. The, the sense that you get that it was it was an amazing thing, you know, and you can't remember all the details, but the details probably aren't that important. It's the sense of its amazingness that's important, not necessarily what the details are. So just kind of look at the big picture. Let the details flow by you. I mean, absorb them, but you don't have to remember them. Just be in that flow and get in that feeling with the thing as a whole rather than with the thing as piece parts. And... The, the things you need to remember will come up and burn themselves into your memory. The things you don't need to remember will just kind of be there as part of the whole and let those go. So don't be frustrated that you can't remember it all. Just in, enjoy it and experience it. And the experience, even if you don't remember it, it's still there. Just like people who don't remember their dreams, they're still dreaming. They're still making choices in those dreams. And those choices still affect their quality of consciousness, whether they remember them or not. So it's all there. It's part of your experience. And remembering it is not terribly important unless you get that sense of, oh, I need to remember this. This is going to be important at a later time, and I want to be able to bring it up. Then you should try to focus on it and try to remember it. Yeah. But otherwise, just experience it. Or if it's meant for a book, then probably I will find a way to express it somehow. Yes. And if you feel that it's something to share, you may want to collect these and, and publish them or put them up on your, your site. And that's a good thing to do because, yeah. you know, it, hard, to, hard to say what the point is. But for you, the point may be sharing. 
and then you should do that. And if other people don't understand it, well, that's something they have to deal with. Surprisingly, they do. <laughs> Most of the people understand and appreciate all this. So, yeah. All right, thank you. Thank you, Sveta. Um, listen, Tom, moving on. Next question is from MBT forum user Brownie. Uh, Tom, please may I ask for your theory on humor? What is it? And when does it become ego-based? For example, laughing at another's disabilities, race, or making jokes on taboo issues that can be perceived as both humorous to some, but offensive to others. That is a great question. Okay, well, humor is, a, you know, is an expression of what amuses us. If it's if it's humor, um, <laughs> sarcasm. If it's what annoys us, <laughs> but humor is interesting, and laughing itself is interesting. Laughing and crying are very similar things. If you think of the the physiological response, a laugh and a laughing and crying are only different by facial expression, and even then. It's really hard to tell sometimes whether somebody is laughing or crying. You know, it's just by looking at them, it's hard to tell. And you laugh or cry because you have feelings that can't be expressed in words. You have strong feelings, but no words will really express those feelings in, in that depth and of that strength. So, you know, without words, we're back to the, uh, you know, gesture part of our, you know, before language was words, you know, we, we had uh, grunts and gestures. Well, that's basically what the laughing and crying are. You, you go back to the, to the grunts and gestures kind of thing where the words fail. And in those strong emotions, typically words fail. There's just no words to describe how you feel. So you do it in terms of gesture and laughing. But now humor is a little different. Humor expresses us at the level we happen to be working at you know our, the quality of consciousness you have will depend on what you find funny um, in many respects there's some people find awful things to be funny hurtful things things that uh, you know are damaging to other people they laugh at other people's hardship and that sort of thing is just a reflection of their quality of consciousness, the, their lack of empathy and so on. So humor is what amuses us. And what amuses us can go everywhere from bizarre to, uh, you know, to dark, to light. Uh, humor can be ego, but it doesn't have to be ego. We can be amused by things that has nothing to do with ego. They're just amusing. And and humor can be nothing but ego and arrogance. So it's, you know, it's real broad. You can't just make up one thing and say, this is what humor is. Humor is a reflection of the quality of consciousness of the individual. But it's common to every, you know, it's common to all kind of cultures that I know of. I don't think there's any culture that doesn't laugh and doesn't cry and doesn't find humor in things. And uh, different cultures, I'm sure, find different things funny. That's be part of their experience. It's just another expression of the of the consciousness that kind of is in context of other experiences. Thank you, Tom. Okay, the next question: um, overcoming the fear of death. Um, we're going from humor to the fear of death. Okay, from Event Horizon, they write: the fear of death causes so many people great anxiety 
pain and even anger. I feel this fear is often twofold, both the fear of dying themselves and the fear of losing others who die. So my question is, what is the best way to help someone get over their fear of death? I would imagine exposure therapy is probably not a good approach. (laughs) Probably not. The fear of death is a problem for a lot of people. Um, I think the something that could help would be to help them see a bigger picture. When you realize that you are an individuated unit of consciousness playing a avatar, well, that takes a lot of the sting out of you know your avatar dies. Certainly the people who play Sims characters or uh, World of Warcraft characters, their their characters die regularly because that's the nature of, of some of those games. And nobody gets really upset and we don't have funerals for the elf, you know, when he gets beaten up by the barbarian. Uh, we just go resurrect another elf or we resurrect that elf and we go on and keep playing the game. We're not really disturbed by that because we know it's just, part of the way the game's played. Well, that's the way it is in our virtual reality. The death of your avatar is just the way the game's played. It's the way it's set up. It's more efficient that way. If we didn't die, we would end up painting ourselves into corners with our beliefs. We'd we'd end up uh, making our growth potential very, very small. So it's better to every so often start over where you get a whole new clean slate and you're able to, you know, express yourself in different ways, in different situations, um, different genders, you know, different uh, social conditions. And all of those differences just give you more and more choices. Where if it was the same old thing, you know, you're a whatever, you're a doctor or a painter or a, or a ditch digger, and that's all you do. And you've done that in the last 800 lives. You know, well, that kind of limits your choices to the choices of a painter or a ditch digger or whatever. And that's not a good thing. You need to be rich. You need to be poor. You need to be in horrible circumstances and, and lovely circumstances because all of those things give you challenges in different ways and it rounds you out. So the idea of having to cycle through lives is a, is an advantage. It makes the whole process more effective and efficient for you to make choices that are that are growing choices, choices for love rather than for fear, it's uh, it's a feature, not a problem, of the of the reality frame. So once people get that idea, then death is not a whole lot different than when your elf dies in a in a video game. You know, it's a you have to uh, start over. Or go back to at least, you know, maybe you lost hit points there or whatever. You know, you've, you've got to uh, do it again. Now, all the stuff that you gather in a lifetime that defines your quality of consciousness, you don't lose that. You get to start with that. That's how it, your quality accumulates. All the stuff that really isn't important, which is all the stuff that's in your intellect, that goes away because otherwise it would confuse you if you had intellectual, you know, memories of your last, uh, you know, 5,000 incarnations. It kind of be a lot to keep track of. It uh, would be emotionally overwhelming. You know, it's just not practical to do that. So the system is efficient. And that would be one way I'd say dealing with the fear of death. If you can see a bigger picture, but for most people, they see the bigger picture intellectually 
which means it doesn't really touch their fear of death because their fear of death is at a deeper level. It's down at the being level. That fear is not in the intellect. And they say, oh, yeah, I see that. Just like the elf, no problem. But they're still afraid of death because that intellect just doesn't carry that much weight down there at the fear level. So that means you have to take this concept of virtual reality and of the nature of our reality, and you have to actually live it. You have to experience it. You have to make it yours down at the being level to where it's not just an intellectual thing. And at that point, the fear of death kind of dissipates. So that would be the the only thing I know that really does that uh, is to have some deeper understanding. Otherwise, you have to have the idea that you deal with life as it comes. And sooner or later, what's going to come is your own death. And that's just the way it is. No point struggling. So if you're very intellectual, you maybe just see the practical value and not worrying about it. That doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean that you, you know, won't, you know, that you, uh, you know, will do something foolish. That's not the point. But um, it's a common fear. The common fear, and uh, I don't know, you have to change those fears at a deep level. Intellect just won't do it, but it maybe is a place to start. Good place to start, Tom, definitely. Um, okay, Bartosz, who's in Chicago, uh, has written, it's, it's a fairly long question, but I am going to read out the whole thing. It's about falling asleep and meditation. Um, so I, I, once again, I relate to this one. Um, hi, Tom. This is going to be a repetitive and somewhat mundane question that I would like to see a take two on. Basically, falling asleep during meditation or when you're learning to meditate. This is an affliction that I encounter all the time. Say 80 to 90% of the time that I do meditate, I get into a sleep state where I have dreams indistinguishable from light sleep. So if it looks like a duck and sounds like a duck, it's a duck, right? I will note that personally, I do not have, I'm sorry, I do not have lucid dreams. And quite frankly, in all of them, my intellect is virtually incapacitated uh, to balance my NPR package, uh, my PMR package, I suppose, where I have an undeveloped uh, being level experience. However, I do get vivid scenarios playing out from time to time where my fear is not showing in situations where it should be ripe for, uh, quote, harvest. I'm sure that my technique is in large part at fault, such as closing eyes and lying down. Uh, I'm experimenting with that. So to summarize, I do remember you saying that people that get this symptom of just falling asleep during workshops and your conclusion, as I recall, is that they didn't actually fall asleep. There's something I must be missing here then, so I can't wait to hear from you again regarding this. Also, as an aside, there are studies that conclude that going mentally through the motions of exercising has an 80% effectiveness of actual physical exercise. Coupling this with the fact that this is a virtual reality and you can cut out the ritual and process, wouldn't you personally benefit from just bumping your stats with intent and actually skip your exercise routine if you were just an avatar? I'm sorry, that was two questions. I really should have separated those. Yeah. Sorry. Well, that's all right. Let me do the last one first because um, and then we'll go back and get and get the other one about the following asleep with meditation. Um, yes, you can get some value out of just um, exercising in your mind. Athletes will tell you that most of what they do, if they're really top level competitors has to do, it's a mental game. It's not all a physical game. It's a mental game. And they see themselves, you know, uh, throwing the spear or pushing the shot put or running the race. They see that. And they see it in, in detail and they go over and over and over in their minds. Well, 
they're doing a couple of things. One, they're helping their central nervous system adjust to those particular kinds of motions and, and moving by going over them with their, with their mind, okay, with their brain. They're helping teach their brain that this is, a, this is something that the brain does over and over and over. Then the brain gets more uh, at ease with it. So it gets more fluid with it and, and less clumsy. So those are things that you can do. Even people who use their minds to, you know, lift weights and whatever will show some improvement in muscle tone just from going through the process uh, in their mind. But I would not do that, and I wouldn't particularly recommend that other people just do that. This is a physical reality. We're meant to be, you know, to interact and, and, uh, and um function here with our physical bodies, our avatars. There's something about doing that exercise that requires some uh, dedication, requires some uh, focus, and you should really be doing both when you exercise. You should actually be lifting the weight physically, but your mind should also be on that lifting of the weight, the physical body, the feel of the of the muscle contracting. You need to be you know, the, you know, be in the present. So when you're exercising, you need to be with your exercising. The idea that you exercise while you watch a TV or exercise while you're thinking about something else, you're losing some of what you could gain if you were just with that exercise. So you exercise and you feel the muscles, you feel the breathing, you uh, try to maybe slow down the breathing uh, so that you, your body will get more efficient in processing oxygen. It should be a mind-body exercise together, not just a mind exercise or just a body exercise, but it needs to be a mind-body exercise. The two are connected, intimately connected, and you ought to work them both together. Um, actually, physically getting up and exercise requires some discipline, and it requires some attention that you don't have to give. Otherwise, if you do it all mentally, so I'd say you'd miss something if you just do it mentally, and you miss something very important. So I would suggest that you want to do both. You want to actually lift that weight or run on that track or go outside and take that walk. Uh, and while you're doing it, be mindful of it. Be with it. Don't be uh, thinking about other things. Stay focused on what you're doing and where you are and how it feels and, and where you expect it to take you. You know, the the uh, increase in stamina or the increase in strength or what, the decrease in weight or whatever it is your goals are, keep those in your mind all the time. Because much of that, that uh, mindfulness that he's talking about is modifying future probability. So if in your mind your future probability is that you're slimmer or you're stronger or you're faster or you can process oxygen better, then by keeping that in mind, you'll do those things better. It'll raise the probability that you'll succeed at all of that. That's why you need to stay mindful and make your exercise both mental and physical together. That's uh, that last question. The first question had to do with falling asleep while you meditate. A lot of people have that problem. And there's several possible causes of it. And I would say the most likely cause that you that you have in doing this is that you have an inability to know whether you are 
what um, well, I probably didn't say that right. You're you're not at ease, or you have maybe some beliefs. You're not at ease with what being out of body is a, is like, or being in a lucid dream. The lucidity or the being beyond your body is something that's a little problematical for you. It's problematical because you may have some beliefs about it. Uh, you're not quite sure what it is or how it would feel. Um, if you had that experience, you'd begin second guessing it and say, is this real? Am I imagining it? So you have issues with just experiencing it and letting it be. That's hard for you to do. And when you have those issues with just experiencing and letting it be whatever it is, one of the strategies to not have to deal with it is to fall asleep, is to lose consciousness. So many people who sleep uh, during meditation, that's what's going on. Now, it's not sleep in the normal sense. In the normal sense, you get very tired, you lie down, and you fall asleep. And you have sleep cycles. I think every 90 minutes you go through a, a sleep cycle from from shallow sleep to very deep unconscious sleep and so on. And every 90 minutes it goes through a cycle. When you have this kind of sleep where you're meditating and you fall asleep, you don't have those sleep cycles. You're not really asleep in the same way that you are normally asleep. What you're doing is you're having your, you're having your dream, if you will, your out of body is not a cogent out of body, but it's a, it's more of a dream reality. But the dream reality isn't going to be quite the same as it would be if you were sleeping. It'll have many of the same elements, but it won't be quite the same because you, you will see it kind of as a third person. You'll be in this dream, but you won't necessarily be the actor as, as much as you'll be watching the movie, if you see what I mean. That's a third person viewpoint of what's going on. You tend to have that, which is more of the out-of-body perspective as opposed to the dream. It's, uh, the dream perspective is usually first person. You are the actor in the dream. So it's a little different than a dream. So now you have something that's easier for you to deal with. It doesn't create any stress, doesn't uh, run into any beliefs. And you can have these dreams, kind of let them wander wherever they do and you'll be making choices in those dreams. You'll be experiencing things and making choices. And you're sort of quasi in control because you're a third person viewer of it rather than a first person viewer. But you're not as in control as you would be in an out of body. So this is kind of an in-between state where you find comfort. You can do that. You can deal with that. It's not a, something that's, that uh, is a, you know, something that, gives you any kind of stress or tension. So that's why you have them. And that's why you uh, do that all the time. Now, what to do about it? Yes, you can try meditating sitting up instead of lying down, but that really isn't the problem. You can meditate just fine lying down. You know, uh, you can try meditating sometime when you're not tired. Now, if you're really tired when you meditate, if, if when you meditate is just before you go to sleep at night after a hard day, then that's different. Now you probably are just falling asleep, but that's a different thing. I'm not thinking that's not what you're doing. You're meditating some other time when you really wouldn't be sleeping, but you're kind of dozing off in this light sleep. So it's an in-between state that you've picked. There's all sorts of altered states and you've just picked one that's comfortable for you, but you intellectually, it's not the one you want. You'd rather have a clear out of body. But that's your intellect. What you're most comfortable with is the one that you're getting. And that's why you're getting it. So um, 
I guess the thing to do would be you can try sitting up because that will make it harder for you to, to doze. You can try standing up. That would make it even harder for you to, to doze off. And you can try being more aware within these shallow uh, light dreams, as you describe them, um, more aware of what's going on and why it's going on. Connect more to them. Uh, try to become more of the action rather than third person. Try to move it back down to first person, to where you're the actor, not the person watching the movie. So those are some things that you can do with it. But other than that, just be patient with it. If you do that and you fall asleep and you've been doing that for six months or a year and you always fall asleep, it's okay. You're doing what is comfortable for you to do. That will change. Just keep with it. Just keep doing it. And you will find that as time goes by, it might be a year, it might be two years, it'll change. Because you'll get to the point where you're kind of bored with that and then you will automatically start doing other things. So anything you experience like that will change on its own by itself if you give it enough time. But the wrong answer is to say, I, it's not working for me, I quit. That is not a, that's not a good answer. Just stick with it and see if you can't uh, uh, connect with it more um, I don't know, more, more securely connect with it so that you are more aware of what you're doing, more aware of the choices, more aware of the thing, what's going on, and why is it going on? Why am I getting this picture? You know, what's the point of it? And then you might ask, could I have, pic you know, I'd like to have pictures that are more meaningful, that are more, uh, uh, you know, that I learn from, more challenging. And if you keep that intent, then you'll tend to get that. It'll change. It'll follow your intent. As long as you're comfortable where you are, then it'll stay the way you are. You will change eventually just out of boredom, but you can make it change more quickly by focusing your intent more on what you want to happen and why you want it to happen and keep that in your mind and it'll start to move in that direction. But like anything, Tom, it, it takes time, right? It takes time. Yeah. Impatience is a, is a big problem. <laughs> a lot of people have had great success uh, either going out of body and or meditating using those wonderful binaural beats that you created last year. Uh, Mike actually has a question about that. Mike, it's all yours. Thanks, Keith. Uh, Tom, around about 20 years ago, I had a very intense out-of-body experience and coupled with just uh, my life, I kind of turned my back on the spiritual kind of path and it's been about two years since I've been listening to you on YouTube and reading your books and of late I've kind of really connected with the MBT community and I've noticed well I, I bought the binaural beats and I've noticed that in my dreams I'm actually becoming aware of, of making choices in the actual mm -hmm. dream as it's happening. Um, mm -hmm. Last week, I noticed that I, I closed a, a shutter um, on a person's window so I wouldn't disturb them during the dream. And I was looking at the shutter thinking, should I close it or should I leave it? No, I think I'll close it. And I closed it so when I was walking past the, the window, I wouldn't wake them up. And I've noticed that this is happening more and more. Now, is that happening because I'm just thinking about it all the time or is something actually happening? Am I connecting with the larger consciousness system 
again. Yeah, I'd say that um, both of those, you're that you are becoming aware of your choices. That means your dream is becoming lucid. That's what lucidity means. You become aware of your choices. You become aware that you're in a dream and you're making these choices and you, you see the, you are, um, you can think about the choice. You can ponder the choice. Should I do this or should I not? And why, you know, what's the, what's the moral value or ethical value or any other value that you have in it? What you get when you're in those sort of, um, vignettes where you have choices like you walk by the shutter should you close it or should you not well what are the conditions who do i bother who do i not bother what you know is it worth the trouble all these sorts of things they are little stories if you will little plays that you're just dropped into so that you get to make the choice that's the whole point of it you know the shutter the other person and you're wondering about it one would you would you think enough to care about that other person or would you just figure out that's their problem you know not my problem well that's a choice a choice to care about other people and you make that choice then you know that's that's part of what you're supposed to do so that means that the larger conscious system is working with you they're giving you uh little um little stories to play in little things to make choices in that uh, are the kind of choices of Choice for love or choice for fear? Choice for ego, you know, for belief, what? Ever, you can make them, but you're being set up in these, these choices and you're given enough awareness that you're aware of the choice that you're making because then it's more meaningful to you. So that's good. Yes, I'd say the system is working with you and uh, you're in class and often you'll get a whole set of, of uh, if, if it's just beginning to happen, you will probably get a whole set of 10 or 20 various choices, some of them trivially easy, some of them very challenging, until the system has some idea where, where you are starting to have problems, you know, where your challenges are. And then you'll start working more on the challenge and let go of the things that are easy. But So it could be just a whole range of different things. Don't look for a lot of continuity between them other than the fact you've got choices to make. You're set in a situation, you're given an attitude, you're given a situation, and now what are you going to do? And your attitude that you have to start with may be anger or may be upset, you know, to start with an attitude, but you also are thinking about it. So the thing to do isn't just haul off and be angry because that's the way you started. It's to question it. Why am I so angry about this? Eh, maybe I shouldn't be so angry, you see. So the anger is something that's given to you. It wasn't yours. It's not that you got angry. You started in the scenario playing an angry character. That was you. And now you have to deal with that anger. And uh, if that anger doesn't feel right to you, then you diffuse it and say, no, nah, that, that's not what I want to do. But, so don't be surprised if you start the scenario with some sort of emotion or feeling or knowing that isn't really like you, you're just supposed to deal with that and see how you deal with it. You hit the nail right on the head there, Tom. Thank you so much. <laughs> and that's the question you wanted to hear, Mike? And that's the answer, oh, I mean? Uncanny. It's uncanny how just the <laughs> words that you use and what's happening with me at the moment scary. Thank you, Tom. Uh, it's, an, <laughs> it's an adventure, though, Mike. Uh, enjoy the ride. <laughs> Sveta, are you ready, my lovely? 
He's nibbling on a carrot. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes. Okay. My question is this. Um, well, many knows that my sister is dying. Um, with your help, Tom, I overcome the fear of death. Um, of course, it hurts and everything, but it's a completely different thing. Then I wanted to embark on experiment and help her experience dying in a good way. Mm -hmm. But she doesn't seem, she used to be very curious about spiritual things and everything, but she doesn't seem like anything. I mean, she is very um, alert. She talks like she remembers everything and stuff, but she does, she's not interested in anything. This world, that world, soul, her daughter, anybody. She's just completely shut down. She can't cry. She never says a word. She never complains. And I, I'm kind of offended because I'm thinking maybe she doesn't trust me or something. You know, like I could talk to her about anything. But maybe she, maybe she just doesn't have energy that could be too, because she doesn't walk anymore. Um, but I expected um, to see some something interesting in the process, not just, she's not a vegetable either, you know? She talks, mm -hmm. but she, she's not interested in anything and how do I prepare her? I, I can't even say, for example, Luda, you know, you're dying and maybe you should, maybe you want to talk about something. She's like, no, I'm okay. I'm, I think I, uh, I hope for a miracle. That's all. Yeah, well, she's, she's frightened. She has a lot of fear and she just doesn't want to talk about it. Because if she talked about it, she feels like she would fall apart. She, if you got her to talk about it, she may not be able to control it. She'd go into, you know, she'd go into a place that was not, she doesn't want to go. So in a way, it's kind of denial so that I don't have to go there. If I talked about it, I would end up getting upset and emotional and all this stuff would pour out and it would be terrible. Best thing to do is just keep it all walled in not talk about it, ignore it, and that way I don't have to deal with it. So it's a kind of a denial, not wanting to deal with it, and that's where she is. Many people get like that um, when they are dying. It's not an unusual thing. That's, the, that's that fear of death and fear of you know, the process that they're in. They feel like they're in this process, and they know where it's going, but they don't really want to talk about it because if they did, they feel they'd lose control. And then that would be, you know, they don't want to be reduced to, you know, crying and sobbing and all that sort of stuff. And they'd rather just stuff all that in and keep it hidden. Well, what you can do is, is talk to her. One, be there in case that changes and she might want to talk about it. But as long as she brushes it off, you can anytime, you don't have to be with her. You can be in your own house, in your own space. You can meet with her mentally, connect with her in a mental way, talk to her and comfort her. It's going to be okay. 
you know, this is just a transition process. You'll be fine and give her a lot of comfort if you can to help that fear be not quite so menacing, not quite so scary. And she will hear you. And because you're her sister, you have closeness. When you talk to her, she will hear it. But talk to her not in a way that you want to manipulate her and get her to talk about it or, you know, you really need to talk about this. She'll push that away. It has to be just about her and her feelings and giving her positive things. Tell her that you love her, you know, all this, just just positive stuff. And if you do that, she will lighten up some. She won't be quite so walled in and having everybody else walled out, but she's in there alone with her fear and she doesn't want to go there. That's why she's like that. And you can't drag her there because that would be not good. It's her choice, her decision. You have to respect that that is her choice, but you can talk to her without physically talking to her and it will work and she will get the message. So all the things you'd like to say to her, say them to her that way. And uh, as long as your your intent is to make her feel better and realize that she is, you know, she's got all the choice. It's her choice. She has free will. You're not trying to manipulate her into being any way else. You're just trying to comfort her. It will work and it'll work very well. Yeah. Thank you. That sounds yeah. nice. And, and she will communicate back with you. It's, it, she will probably also talk with you and she may not intellectually be aware with be aware of it but you may sometimes you don't get a conversation sometimes you only get talk but sometimes you'll get stuff back that she may or may not be aware of saying Uh it's about a 50 50 sometimes they're aware of it and they think they're just talking to themselves you know to their own thoughts or their own imaginations but sometimes you can get a a dialogue going and that may be just as helpful more helpful than anything else that you could do. It, it's often, it's better than talking to a person in body to body because you you skip all of that fear and the walls and all of that stuff isn't there. You can talk to her in a, in a more open and in a deeper, more meaningful way without being in the physical than you can in the physical sometimes. So it's it's often the preferred way to communicate to somebody who is, behind walls yeah i tried to heal her but uh it's so hard it's so hard uh, but uh this is a great idea I, I don't know why i didn't think about it if i talk to entities in meditation why not to her? sure and to those around her you know if sometimes people who feel very awkward because they know someone is dying and they stop treating them like a, you know, like they would normally treat people. You know, they start to treat them in a very, uh, I don't know, um, not, not normal, you know, not really too friendly. They're a little afraid too, because they're also afraid of death and talking to somebody who's dying and talking about death bothers them just as much as it bothers, you know, the person that's dying and there's all this kind of discomfort in the relationship. And if you have any of that going on in family or friends, you can also talk to them and say, it's okay. You know, it'll work out all right. It's just part of life. It's part of the process of coming and going here. 
and relax. Yeah, everybody else is uh, okay, but uh, her daughter is very cruel to her. So. She even kicked her and uh, for spilling the milk and yelled at her and cursed her. She's very, very cruel. Yeah, and that's just her own. That's just her own fear. You know, people remind you, people who are dying, remind the living that they too will die. It's kind of a reminder of your own, you know, mortality. And often people will react like that, very uh, kind of angry and, and uh, almost abusive. But that's just their own fear that's being triggered. And you can go talk to them too. And uh, yeah, so whatever seems to help the situation you have, to, I guess what I'm saying is you have to sometimes look at the whole situation, not just her, but also the people around her will maybe help as well. 